This is the What Now Podcast. We ought to read the Sermon on the Mount a little bit more and about how we treat one another, for one thing. I mean, there's a way to disagree with people civilly and to express your opinion while listening to another person's opinion and allowing them to have their own views. The problem, I think, is when we close doors and say there's only one way of looking at things and anything else is dangerous and hostile and should be somehow eliminated. That's not going to happen in a society where there are multiple approaches to understanding life and decisions that have been made and commitments made. This is the What Now podcast, where we discuss cultural topics related to The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in a respectful and honest way in an effort to uplift, inspire, and create positive change. I am Mary Alice Hatch, your host. Join me as I speak with Dr. Gary Browning, respected BYU Russian professor who served as the first mission president in the former Soviet Union as the Cold War was winding down. Dr. Browning shares his experience with political polarization and how members can use their influence to temper the rise of political contention to increase civility and foster peace. Today, I'm here with Gary Browning. Gary, we're so happy to have you with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Well, I'd like to give a little background on you. In 1990, President Nelson, who was then Elder Nelson, was over bringing the gospel into the Soviet Union, which was a big undertaking as the Cold War was winding down, and he selected you from a group of respected prospects to be the first president of a Russian mission in Moscow. So what was it like to be selected for this historical position, despite the pushback you had received from many members because of your connection with Russia and as a BYU professor who taught Russian language and literature. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Well, it was a great thrill to have the opportunity of returning to Russia. I had gone there on several trips, and so it was familiar to me, but not in the capacity of a mission president. I should mention to you that before I was able to go to Russia, There were other people who were doing wonderful work there. The Finnish mission president, President Mikam, and his first counselor, Yusi Kempainen, had received from Elder Nelson the charge to try and find ways to take the gospel into Russia. And so they not only found ways, but they started taking the gospel in. And they established a little branch in a city in between Helsinki and Leningrad, and then they moved on in into, to Leningrad, and they were doing excellent work by the time I arrived. I will say just one other thing, too. The church was, at that time, inviting Soviet TV crews and newspaper people and radio commentators to come to Salt Lake, and the church hosted them, showed them around the city and around the church facilities and so forth created a lot of goodwill. And these people who had been in Salt Lake returned to the Soviet Union, and they had warm memories of being there. They shared those memories with the people that they were addressing, whether it be by TV or radio or otherwise, particularly in newspapers, created a lot of goodwill from these people. And so our missionaries, when they first started, go to the meetings and discover that people had heard about the church or maybe they'd heard the TV program or read the newspaper, and they were well disposed to listen carefully to what the missionaries had to say, and it resulted in a rapid 
increase in church membership in those early years. Thank you for that background. I didn't know that. Yes. So when you were there, they were primed a little bit for the church being in their country? That's true. And it was a time of increasing liberty in the country. Russian Orthodoxy had uh, been prominent, and not only prominent, but dominant since the year 1000. And so they had uh, tremendous strength, and uh, virtually all Russians considered themselves Russian Orthodox. So this was unusual when there was a freedom of religion that was coming into Russia. And they even, the legislature passed some bills that guaranteed freedom of religion so that people didn't feel that they could not learn about other faiths. Most of them would stay in their own faith, of course, but some perhaps were dissatisfied. And so they could look at other possibilities, including our church and a number of people joined the church at this time. Once more, they were encouraged to do that by watching TV and reading in the newspaper and listening to radio, good things about the church. So it was an ideal way to begin. Yeah, that is ideal because sometimes some of those communist countries can skew things with their media and their influence. So it's great that they were supportive of the church in that. What was it like to witness firsthand the historical shift in religious freedom in the USSR in 1990? You're talking a little bit about that and be able to open up the Moscow mission right before the dissolution of the USSR in 1991. You were there in a really historical time. It was an exhilarating time. So many things were changing. So many new opportunities were arising. The people were feeling the freedom and enjoying it. This is the time that Mikhail Gorbachev was leading the country, and he was introducing even some forms of capitalism, which seemed never to have been possible because the communism was so deeply rooted by that time. And so there were just areas of freedom that were arising in so many areas in the church as well. And so I think the reception got there was conditioned by a lot of good publicity work and public relations work of the church. And then all of these freedoms that were suddenly available to them. And when they came to our church meetings, Many people really liked the feeling there. It was not nearly as formal as the church to which they had belonged. And they liked that feeling of freedom and the chance to learn from others and also teach others. And so it was, there were just a lot of things that were working in our favor at that, at that time. Yeah, it seems like the perfect time to have the church present itself right at the dissolution of the USSR that Iron Curtain has come down. That's right. And we maintain good relations with the Russian Orthodox Church. I personally met with uh, several of the prelates and was impressed by their sincerity and hard work, and I complimented them. The patriarch of all Russia uh, met with Elder Oaks and some other church leaders, and he welcomed us into the country, but he said, I don't want to have you take any of our members away for your church. And Elder Oaks, I think, gave a very wise answer. He said, we have found in our work around the world that when people are satisfied with their religion, they're not interested in another religion. It's those who are not satisfied uh, that uh, will uh, change your affiliations. And that seemed to please the 
patriarch of all Russia. When he heard that, he was very warm and very welcoming. That is the perfect response. I thought it was too. <laughs> that is the because if they're not happy with the Russian church, they're going to come to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That's great. So prior to your being a mission president, you were a professor of Russian language and literature at Brigham Young University. And during the Cold War with Russia and the fall of the Iron Curtain in 1989, Russia and its influence was a concern to many U.S. citizens, including many members of the church. And because of your connection to Russia, you became a negative target. Can you speak about that? Sure. I want to emphasize that most people felt just fine about my trips to Russia and talking about it, but there were those who really feared the idea of any kind of relations with communists. And so those people, of course, expressed their reservations and concerns. There were a number of people who wrote letters and were critical of my going there. I tried to explain to them that I was going there to learn and also to share the beliefs that we have within our church but it was not an adversarial relationship. There was a lot of warmth and, and mutual support. But again, there were quite a few members of uh, the church that felt that any kind of association with communists would be bad for us and probably lead some away from the church. But that didn't happen. Most of the members were very happy to see relations improving between the United States and Russia. And it was just natural that that would happen within the church as well. Those letters that were written generally only came from one person at a time. There were some people that wrote a whole series of letters, however, and I recall one person that was writing to me approximately every week and becoming more and more upset that I was talking about my experiences. I was not trying to sell Russia to anyone. I was just trying to say that people were being very receptive very kind and open to me, asked a lot of questions, wanted to learn. They were not leaving the Russian Orthodox Church in mass, but on the other hand, there were quite a few that did. But there were some that were upset that there was any kind of communication with so-called communists. Many of these people had been communists because it was beneficial to them in their work. They were able to progress more fast, more quickly if they had communist ties. But as I say, things were opening up and becoming much more possible for people to consider other options. And when they did, our church had a lot to offer and presented a lot of appeal. When I first arrived in Russia, the missionaries had been encouraged to try to think of ways to take the gospel into Russia. And they did, but they went farther they started meeting with people and teaching people. And so the missionary work had already begun in a place like Weyburg, which is in between Helsinki and Leningrad, and even in Leningrad. When I went to my first church service in Leningrad, I was astonished to see the number of people that were at the meeting. I was thinking that we would have maybe three or four. There were maybe 30 or 40 people there and they were just having a wonderful time and talking with people who had been in the church just a little longer than they. It was really a joyous experience for them to come. They loved our music. We didn't have our hymns in Russian yet, and so we hurried and tried to get a few of them translated. 
that we would sing over and over. And then the church came to our rescue and put a team of uh, translators uh, to work, and they translated a whole hymnal for us. But the Russians really did like our church music and would sing the songs with real gusto and, and a deep feeling. So that worked well for us. Well, how thrilling for these people who had been pretty oppressed for so long to have the opportunity to feel the spirit and to be in a place that allowed for that. That's exactly right. The people who joined the church also were very good uh, missionaries themselves. We didn't call them missionaries or put any pressure on them, but they shared with their neighbors. The early missionaries meet with a family and then uh, ask whether they could return. And of course, most of them said yes. And when they would return, it was not unusual. It didn't happen every time, but quite often when they came back, there would be a whole apartment full of people, people who were neighbors and friends of the individuals who had heard the missionaries the first time. And they were now sharing with others, and these others wanted to learn about the church as well. It was just such a wonderful time and almost uh, idyllic for any missionary work. Uh, people had been deprived of the contact with the West for so long and now had a positive feeling about our church because of the TV programs and newspaper articles and magazine articles that had been published. Thanks again to our leaders in Salt Lake who invited these others to come and see for themselves. And they returned with very positive messages and with enthusiasm, as I've indicated to you earlier. And so there was very rapid growth. The first half of my mission was spent mainly in the western part of Russia. There was just so much to do. The second half of my mission was uh, spent entirely in Moscow and environs. So that's where I was able to go with missionaries and uh, help establish the church in Moscow, which is an enormous city, and then other satellite cities around there. And then we would spread beyond that to additional important cities like Nizhny Novgorod and Novosibirsk, and finally clear to to the west coast to important cities there as well. So there was a great deal of opportunity, and it was a time of enormous happiness for us. And although there was a lot to do, it didn't seem to be burdensome at all. It was, everything was so interesting and so rewarding that we were deeply grateful to have the opportunity to serve. That is so rewarding. I mean, you think of your time and kind of the preparation you were given as a instructor or professor at BYU in Russian language and literature, and you've been kind of primed for this. Then you get the opportunity to actually be in the country and do what you're doing. That must have been just a thrilling experience. Truly, it was. That's incredible. And then when you came back, did you go back to BYU and teaching at BYU? Yes, I did. Uh I came back and uh, resumed my responsibilities at BYU and continued teaching mainly Russian literature, but also Russian language and Russian studies in general, including history and culture. And I was able then to share my experiences with the students, which was enriching in their experience to realize what good things had already happened in Russia and good things that were coming. 
Uh, still. Now, did the negativity kind of taper off after you are mission president, you're back at BYU? Did people kind of drop that or did that kind of continue? They definitely dropped that. Most of the negativity came very early when people heard that what happened actually was the Utah government had a council of humanities and they invited people from all over the st state to submit materials that would allow this council to decide whom they would invite to become their speakers. And then the speakers, they would be available to go to any city and the council would pay the expenses, the travel expenses of the speaker. So I was giving a lot of talks about my experience in visiting Russia. I wasn't trying to promote Russia or sell Russia. I was just explaining how they treated me, which was very warmly with open arms. There were a few who perhaps were worried about an American being in their midst because they also had received a lot of propaganda against our country as we had against theirs. But most people had a tendency to welcome me and others with open arms. The same thing was happening in Russia as was happening in the United States. In the United States, we were learning about what was happening in Russia and seeing that there could be relations and seeing welcoming uh, signs from them as we tried to show to the Russians. So once again, it was a time of, of great change. And I had expected perhaps there would be some reservation and even some resistance, but very, very little of that. Almost all of the people were delighted with the chance to meet with our missionaries and myself and continue the discussions about the church. A lot of them were also interested in talking about the United States and testing some of the things that they had been taught against uh, was the reality. And so there was an interest in that as well. But that usually tapered off fairly soon. And the emphasis then was on learning more about the church. Well, I think sometimes in anything politically charged or talking about a communist country and members of a free country, a lot of those kind of negative comments can come from ignorance and misunderstanding when they gain a greater understanding about these things, those things kind of dissipate and, and taper off. So I'm so glad to hear that. In our country as a whole, it's becoming more polarized. And as members of Christ Church and possessing the knowledge that we have, how can we unite to increase civility instead of contributing to increase polarization? How would you speak to that based on your experience? The only answer that I would have is get more knowledge. If we can know more about the other side or someone whom we distrust or fear, it's interesting how generally these feelings of negativity will dissipate. There are some people who are Americans and really don't see much good in any other nation, not only Russia. I think there was a release of tremendous joy after so many decades of hostile relations with the Soviet Union to discover that within the Soviet Union, not speaking about the government necessarily, but uh, the general population, there was great interest and willingness to listen. And I'm not suggesting that everyone overthrew what they'd been taught earlier and moved over to become American patriots. No, of course that didn't happen. They were very deep uh, patriots of their own country and that's how it should have been. But on the other hand, it was a time of increasing freedom it was the time of the Mikhail Gorbachev reforms, and he had uh, opened up so many doors. It was becoming a different country. 
that proved to be something that was great value to the country, but also was difficult for many because once more they felt safe and secure in the knowledge that they had been taught about communism. And now they had to weigh communism against uh, capitalism. And I will say this, that with Gorbachev's reforms, which included elements of capitalism, there were some problems. There were people who were left behind. Capitalism sometimes requires a lot of people. They have to work a little harder than they did in uh, Russia under communism. And there were some people that just couldn't keep up. And so, again, they became uh, very deeply concerned and often felt uh, hostile feelings towards the United States because of what was happening to them. And I remember when I was visiting there, as Gorbachev was introducing his reforms, initially people were very excited about them and wanting to try them themselves. But they found that capitalism had some disadvantages to them. You were more or less on your own. You didn't have guaranteed work. And if you failed in a business that you had tried to start up, then you had to accept all the responsibilities. Many of them felt that it was much better to be uh, taken care of under the communist system than to be out on your own. And of course, there are others who did splendidly well, but it was a hard time of readjustment for them. Well, there's a risk there, right? Aren't always easy to implement. Something that's happened in the United States for a very long time has been successful and evolved. And that's a new concept to them. And they did have a lot of security, even though they were kind of oppressed and controlled. They did have a lot of security. They had guaranteed work. Guaranteed health care, guaranteed apartments, although they were very poor ones. But nonetheless, they had shelter. Many of those things were taken away. So it was a hard time. Gorbachev adjusted to this too and made sure that they had things like free medical care, which they were used to, and free education and very low cost transportation opportunities. I was going to say uh, Gorbachev did become less popular among them. Well, I'd like to go back to kind of what you were talking about with civility, where increased information is a really important element. It's easy sometimes when we hear these things, and we just saw this, what happened recently in our political situation here in America, where it didn't feel very American, where we had people attacking our congressional building. But we have this increased polarization happening in our country, and it seems like we're almost approaching a Cold War within our own country, and sometimes within our congregations. So what responsibility do we as members of the church have to close the gap between sharing opinions and opposing opinions on other people? You know, I don't know how involved you are on social media, but there's a lot of antagonism on social media and people can be pretty hostile and they're active members of the church saying some pretty caustic things to other members of the church. How would you speak to that? That's such an important issue. It's uh, good for you to bring up because I think all of us are feeling that to a certain degree. And I don't mean this facetiously, but I think we ought to read the Sermon on the Mount a little bit more and about how we treat one another, for one thing. I mean, there's a way to disagree with people civilly and to express your opinion while listening to another person's opinion and allowing them to have their own views. The problem, I think, is when we close doors and say there's only one way of looking at things and anything else is dangerous and hostile and should be 
somehow eliminated. That's not going to happen in a society where there are multiple approaches to understanding life and uh, decisions that have been made and commitments made. But occasionally I've been the object of that kind of hostility. And my feeling has always been that the more information people can have, the more they can talk with you, the more they can ask you questions and allow you to respond, the better. And so I'm just very much in favor of keeping doors open and making sure the talking is something that everyone has a chance to do and that there aren't any barriers to freedom of expression at, at all or feelings that they can't express themselves because they might hurt another person's feelings. Uh, within the church, we do really quite well. But on the other hand, even when there are a few people that are hostile, that does create some antagonism and some hurt feelings. And I just think that should be avoided at all costs. I was really serious when I say we should read the Sermon on the Mount. We really ought to be willing to turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. And instead of building walls around ourselves and expecting people to somehow either stay out or do exactly as we wish if they want to come in, I don't think that works in our society this day. There are just too many sources of information and too many other options for us to be hostile. Some people continue to, however, as I say, the letter writing campaigns. I did find out later that they had many letters to my university, and this is a compliment to my administration. They didn't make me feel that there was any problem or that I should be worried about my position or, or just make me concerned that people were writing. I do feel sorry that that happened. In fact, sometimes I feel even emotionally distressed that these school administration officials, the university presidents, presidents and academic vice presidents, my dean and so forth, had to bear up under this That because each time a letter came, that meant they had to respond to it. But not one of them ever said a word to me about this or complained to me or suggested that perhaps I don't give quite as many talks or write as many articles as I had been. They were just extraordinarily kind and understanding. And I just take my hat off before them and bow down. I think they were just miraculous people. I love that they were respectful of you and protecting you in a way. They did. And that they didn't want it to affect the work that you were doing. They were respectful enough of what you were trying to do. And they also probably had a much greater understanding of what you were actually doing than someone who's just writing in ad hoc and having a knee-jerk reaction. Yeah, I love that. I will mention. Go ahead. I was going to say that I will mention, and I think you're aware of this too, that as one academic vice president was ready for retirement and he'd been called as a mission president, and he was cleaning out his office, he went through all of his file cabinets and had many of them, and he pulled out two thick packets of material. On one of them was written something like complaints against Gary Browning, and the other one was positive responses to Gary Browning. The complaints, I'm afraid, were more than the positive responses, but there were plenty of positive ones too. But again, I didn't even know about this until that academic vice president was leaving. And he thought, well, I don't want to just throw these away. So he gave them to me. And I've taken them to the Carol Bailey Library. They always want to have material 
like this, and they've photocopied everything. So if anyone wants to read either the letters that were in attack mode or those that were positive, they are now available through this special collections at the Harold Bailey Library. Oh, I love that you did that. It just allows for more opportunity for people to get educated about the situation. And I love that you brought that up and and were kind of honest about how that made you feel and maybe a little misunderstood and lonely, you know, that people within your church culture would attack you in that way. But I love that you kind of moved past the negativity and you focused on the majority of the good feedback that you were getting and the people who supported you. Because in every aspect, there's going to be negativity and positivity, just how life is, right? Yes. I love that you could not let that kind of shake how you felt about people in the church, but just kind of see past it and and turn them all over to the Harold B. Lee Library. <laughs> <laughs> yep, they're available. Well, that's good to know. So kids who are interested in this and they wanted to read it, they can go over there and look at it. But our knowledge of the gospel and our belief that we are all brothers and sisters should help us shift the focus away from our differences, as we're talking about, and help us find the common good. We have so much more in common than we do not, right? Absolutely. I'll tell you something that's a little bit funny to lighten the mood. There was this one particular person. I think he's a fine man in many ways. I could just tell that from the letters he would write. He was an educated man, but highly opposed to anyone saying positive things about Russia. And he became more incensed as he sensed that I was being received more and more willingly. And it wasn't simply because of me. There were a lot of people that were talking about Russia, and there were articles and television programs and so forth. I was only one among many, but I was part of his culture, and so he was very concerned about me. And I don't know if you remember, there was a time when there was an airplane that was filled with Americans and somehow deviated from its course and got over Soviet territory, and they apparently the pilots didn't believe that they were over there. The Soviets were saying, you've got to turn around and go back or we'll shoot you out of the air. But that situation got worse and worse. And so after a little while, they actually did shoot the airplane down. And there were many people who died. I don't recall now, but maybe 150. Right after that happened, this fellow who was antagonistic toward me called me up late one night and said, I wish you'd been on that airplane. And I said, well, I'm just very glad I wasn't, and then decided to end the conversation there. But wow, that was a very rare exception. Very few people that angry about it. There were many people that disagreed with some of my ideas, even within my own department and my own college. And that's fine. That's what a university is for, I think, is to have a real marketplace of ideas and place the ideas before people and try to defend them and then be willing to adjust when you can see that someone's argument perhaps is more persuasive than yours, but to be civil about it. So as I say, generally, the atmosphere was much more positive than perhaps I would have thought it could have been. Well, civility is kind of a hot topic right now with what we see going on in our own country and even in our church. Sometimes people have differing opinions and they feel entitled to attack other people. And we just know that's not the Savior's way. I mean, he's our ultimate example. He didn't attack people when he differed with them. And sure, he differed with many of the things that people had to say. And he was constantly attacked 
That's right. I don't know how others feel, but I'm always very uncomfortable when someone becomes negative in a church meeting, in a Sunday school lesson or priesthood meeting or whatever. It just seems to me that that's out of place there. In fact, out of place in any of our behavior as members of the church. There ought to be a way to listen to people and then politely say, well, there are certain things that I happily agree with you and some things that I don't at this point. Maybe later on I will. But this attacking a person's being, being very uh, careless about what one says and and too soon to jump on the wagon of uh, campaign against you somehow or get a letter writing campaign against you. That That seems to me to be the wrong way to go about it. And I don't think they're very effective when they do use that, that approach. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. We can be civil. We can be respectful of other people and we can agree to disagree. Sure. So is there anything else you'd like to share? I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I think your history with the Russian connection in Moscow, what you were able to do at the university, how you were able to overlook personal attacks and negativity towards you and have a Christ-like reaction. It just shows so much about the person you are. And I'm inspired by that, especially in this day and age where we have a lot of contention and we can dispel contention by looking at people and views with respect, right? Right. Just one more thing that is tangentially related, I guess. President announced that there would be a temple built in Russia. That has not occurred yet, but I know that it will. There are people who are trying to acquire property and uh, make that uh, prophecy fulfilled. I think that's another reason that I want to continue to maintain good relations with the Russians as I have in the past and help them to feel comfortable with our religion. I've been able to do that to a certain extent because I've been there over long periods of time and met with a lot of city and even national leaders. And the more they can know how we behave, how we're able to respect others' views, and how we admire the successes others have had and rejoice in them and don't feel competition in the sense that we can't be happy unless another person is sad. I'm hoping that all of these meetings that I know the brethren are having when they travel to Russia, and I know the area presidency is having with uh, city and state officials, I'm looking forward to the day that temple can be built. And I I think that's going to be something that the whole church will be able to celebrate and uh, feel that we have come a long ways from the days when we were angrily disposed to anything to do with Russia or Russians and realize that great changes have occurred and it's appropriate for us to make similar changes and also to practice this kind of uh, getting along with one another in our own wards and in our own cities and families. That's inherent in the gospel. And we ought to be the best examples of it anywhere in the world. And I think probably a lot of people are. I certainly see around me outstanding people that uh, I think I need to emulate more. (laughs) Well, beautifully said. We'll end on that. Thank you so much. With pleasure. Thank you for listening to the What Now podcast. Please help us create positive change by sharing this episode with family, friends, and anyone you think it might help. Just click on that share button wherever you listen to podcasts. We invite you to leave a positive rating and review. 
For the review to process, you just need to download the episode and make sure you are subscribed to the podcast. Scroll down the episodes until you see ratings and reviews and share your positive feedback. Positive ratings and written reviews really help our podcast to grow. We never say goodbye. We say what now? This has been a What Now podcast production.